0: In the Psalms, drawing ever closer to the end. All right, so we'll start with our summary statement here for Psalm 133. Psalm 133 anticipates the blessing of a restored Israel. in the land with the king's blessing from Zion. I'll go over that again. Psalm 133 anticipates the blessing of a restored Israel in the land with the king's blessing from Zion. Uh, just has three verses, but to to put it in an outline, if we look at verse one, we see reference to the united tribes, and then verses two and three are descriptive of the blessings from Zion. So, uh, put the outline that way. So, uh, again, verse one, the united tribes. Verses two and three, blessings from Zion. All right, so we'll go to our observations. Psalm 133 is a psalm of David. You can see the superscription there, a song of degrees of David. Uh, The superscription ascribes it to him. Um, There's no musical direction given other than just the the term song that's in the superscription. There's no occasion that's given for the writing of the psalm, uh, but the psalm is obviously a vision um, clearly of the future. Um, so we don't, you know, we don't have a that setting for the psalm. It is a it is a future uh, oriented psalm. Psalm one hundred thirty three, it is a psalm of ascent as far as its major category. The psalms of ascent, beginning in Psalm one hundred twenty, going through Psalm one hundred thirty four. So that makes this the fourteenth of the fifteen psalms in that group of psalms. As far as the minor elements in the psalm. Uh, It is a Zion psalm, and we see the mountains of Zion that are referenced there in verse number three, Uh, and it's also what we've been calling prophetic predictive because it is envisioning a future. This psalm uh, has a vision of, of something that has not as yet happened. Now, Psalm 133 does connect with the other psalms of ascent, and Um, particularly the themes of the restoration of the gathering, the restoration of Israel, and the restoration of Zion. Um, It particularly connects with Psalms 120 and 122. So those Psalms are at the beginning of the the Psalms of Ascent, and both of those refer to the prayer and the desire for peace. And so Psalm 120, verses 6 to 7, and Psalm 122, verses 6 to 9, Psalm 122, in fact, specifically prays for the peace of Jerusalem. And so as we look at Psalm 133, Psalm 133 is envisioning that peace. Um, we see a, a very image-rich description of that peace um, in Jerusalem that is prayed for and, and is sought early in the Psalms of Ascent. Now, as far as the poetic features of Psalm 133 go, um, the structure and the imagery of the psalm that works together. So the opening statement of the psalm is a reflection on the goodness of unitedness. And then that produces two similes, um, which similes are uh, figures of, of speech that, um, uh, that make a comparison and so they describe that goodness using similes of the anointing oil for the priests and the dew that falls upon Mount Hermon. Also in this psalm, as you, as you read this psalm and, and consider it, the psalm here uses a descent motif, which is interesting because these are the psalms of ascent. And we've noticed several ways that ascent is a motif that runs throughout these psalms. So this psalm sort of provides a mirror image of ascent and, and uses a motif of descent. But it, it, it is positive in this sense. The ascent is obviously positive. Generally, you might think of descent as negative, but it is actually positive in this case. So it does provide something of a, of a mirror image which is also another um, effect that can be used for the opening and the closing of poetry, which is interesting because, again, these Psalms of Ascent function like a group, and you're seeing a, a mirror um, from Psalm 120 and Psalm 122, which Psalm 122 also mentions the hills and the help coming from the hills and so on, looking up. So... In this psalm, you have the oil, the anointing oil that runs down, it went down, and then you have the dew uh, from Mount Hermon that descended. So you have all these, all these terms that are used to give this idea of descent, of uh, flowing down, running down, going down. So the movement in the psalm is, is top-down, it's from top to, to bottom, as it were, and also makes use of the mentioning of extremes, to cover the totality. So in the case of Aaron, the oil goes from the head to the hem um, of his garment, from the top to the bottom. And then in terms uh, geographically of Israel, we move in this psalm from Hermon down to Zion. Um, Also, there's an effect in this psalm, and that effect would see all Israel included. So the oil that, that anoints Aaron... Or the priest um, goes from head to toe, essentially, so he's fully covered, and that has implications in the psalm. And then from Hermon to Zion also covers the land of Israel. So um, we have the people and the land being spoken of in totality in this psalm, uh, and we see those and to see those blessings flowing downward. Um, the implication of that being that those blessings are from God. They're coming down um, from God and they are covering the earth and they are covering the people. And so all of that comes out um, through the the, um, poetic features of the psalm, the way that it's constructed and expressed. All right, so we'll go ahead and work our way through these verses. And again, just three, so um, a short psalm this evening. Behold... How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. All right, so verse 1 gives us, really, it's, it's a... An opening exclamation. You see that term "Behold" that stands at the beginning of it, and it's something like a refrain. Um, it's it's like a reflection. How good and how pleasant. Um, the word for good here means good in the in just the widest and the fullest sense. And then it's further intensified by using another adjective that is here translated as pleasant, and the word. Um, that's used means delightful, and, and really, we could even say beautiful. Um, so the, the blessings that are being described could be captured um, and say that they are both beneficial and beautiful. Um, you know, sometimes when you think about uh, things in life that might be beneficial, um, like, you know, certain um, healthy uh, drinks and shakes and protein shakes and things like that, they may be beneficial to you in, in terms of the nutrients and, and the things that they provide, um, but oftentimes they're not beautiful. Um, they, they, don't, they don't taste good. Uh, they're not enjoyable um, as sitting down to a good meal, which, um, you know, so anyway, so this in this case, the blessings are beneficial, but they're also beautiful, and that's what's being reflected on in the opening of the psalm. Now, the word for brethren it can refer to brothers that have the same mother, um, or it refers more broadly to kindred, and particularly to tribal relations, and that is obviously the meaning here. When you look at the psalm, not only in its own context, but also in its setting in the psalms and in this group of psalms and how the, the movement of, this, of the flow of this group of psalms has been, um, there's really just no question about that. It is a, its kindred and tribal relations that are being referred to with this use of the term brethren, and the word for dwell together is translated a few different ways in the Psalms. It's translated abide, um, dwell, endure, and even and oftentimes actually as sit sit down together. And the word does have the idea of of together. It's not just dwelling or abiding or sitting alone, but together. Um, so living together, sitting together, abiding together. And then you see there's further another term that's used here, unity. And that, that word for unity actually means united or unitedly. So David is, is saying or looking forward to the time when the tribes of Israel are living together in the land in peace. And we'll consider more of that when we get to the interpretation. Then verse number two gives us the first image. So we open with this statement. It's like a reflection. It's like an exclamation. Um, it's, it's looking, it's envisioning this future setting. And then th- what the blessings, the, the, the beauty and, and the benefit that's described there are given to us in two images, in, ver- in one in verse two and one in verse three. So this is the first one in verse two. And this first image is of Aaron being anointed, in the office of high priest. And again, it's a simile, so it is like that. The precious ointment, you see that term used there, the precious ointment is actually describing not olive oil in general, but was actually the anointing oil for the priests. And that particular anointing oil was used exclusively for the anointing of the priest, And you could read about that in places like Exodus chapter 29 and verse 7, chapter 30, verses 22 to 32, later in Leviticus chapter 8, verses 10 to 13. So that's the ointment that's being referred to. Now, it ran down from his head onto his beard. Now, the beard um, in a young man is a symbol of strength and vitality. In an old man, it is a symbol of experience and of of wisdom, and the skirts of the garment refer to the edge or to the fringe, or we might even call the hem um, of the garment the long uh, the long robes that the, that the priests wore of, of the priestly garb, so the oil runs down essentially from the head to the hem of the garment, in other words he 's wholly covered in this anointing oil, which has two functions. On the, on the one, uh, it would make him smell very good, as it, as it was quite um, perfumed and aromatic. And then on the other, it also, also functioned to consecrate him to God in that priestly service. And again, we'll talk more about that in interpretation. So that is one thing that this unity is like. And then we get the second image of what it is like, and that is in verse number three. Now, the mention of Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon was in the northern border of Israel. It was in the territory of the tribe of Dan, so it's the northernmost possession of Israel. Um, Mount Hermon, as I understand, is always snow-capped. It's uh, very high in elevation. It is actually where the headwaters of the Jordan River are formed that flow down um, through the rest of Israel. It is the tallest mountain in the promised land of Israel. It is around 200 miles or so north of Jerusalem, which Jerusalem is in southern Israel in, in terms of the, the land promised to Abraham. And so, the the dew um, that is spoken of is 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 what makes. Uh, Mount Hermon, the the rainfall that it gets, the snow that it that it gets, and 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 the general uh, climate, it's not as as arid and dry um, as the southern part of Israel. And so this dew makes Hermon a lush place. And in fact, um, you can read about it. I, I believe it's in Judges chapter eighteen. Um, where Dan picks that as their as their possession, as their tribal allotment, and part of the reasons for it was because of the the verdancy, the, the you know the uh, um, the lushness of of the place, the um, the goodness for the, of the soil for growing things and and so on. And so now this dew that makes Herman this lush place and desirable place is not just staying there. But it's coming down on the mountains of Zion. Now, obviously, um, you know, realistically and, and, and geographically, uh, the dew of Mount Hermon is not falling on the mountains of Zion 200 miles away. Um, again, it's a poetic expression, it's a simile, it's a comparison. The point is you're actually looking at two different extremes. So you have the mountains of Zion, which are, in, which are in Jerusalem, that's the southern part of Israel, and then Mount Hermon, which is the northern part of Israel. And so you have sort of this north to south, um, we've seen this sort of thing in, in the Psalms and poetic expression where you have east to west or north to south and essentially those compass points um, that are used, which is a way of describing the entire area is, is what is meant. And so the, the point of the image is that it covers the whole land, making the whole land of Israel uh, an, an abundant land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that, that is lush and fertile and and productive, um, a land that is bringing forth abundantly. And then we see the last closing line of, of the psalm, um, Which describes further the mountains of Zion as the place where the Lord, where Yahweh commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Now, this reference to commanding the blessing is also mentioned in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 21, Deuteronomy chapter 28, and verse number 8. And it's used in those places in reference to the blessings that will come upon Israel if they fulfilled the old covenant. Of course, they did not fulfill the old covenant. They didn't keep it. They broke it. Um, And so these blessings that come, well, these blessings, you know, we understand will come actually through the new covenant, not through the old covenant because that has been, um, it was broken by them and has been fulfilled and done away in Christ. And through the new covenant, these blessings are going to come, and and it is everlasting life. That's another one of those themes, this evermore, forevermore we've seen going through the Psalms of Ascent. And we see it here again, life pointing to salvation, obviously. Everlasting life in in this lush land of Israel from Hermon to Zion that is well watered um, and brings forth abundantly. All right, so let's go to interpretation. So Psalm 133 envisions the future gathering and restoration of Israel and restoration of the land. And we know that that's thematic in the Psalms of Ascent. Um, we know that that's thematic as we are getting toward the end of the, of the Psalms in general. So um, David is looking forward to the time when the tribes sit together unitedly um, in the land and so you can think about how this is this is prophesied, of course, much later than David, in places like Jeremiah thirty-one ten. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. Again, in Ezekiel chapter thirty-four verses eleven to twenty-four, for thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I even I will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country." I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost, and bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong, I will feed them with judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats. Seemeth it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures, and to have drunk of the deep waters, but you must foul the residue with your feet? And as for my flock, they eat that which ye have trodden with your feet, and they drink that which ye have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle. Because you have thrust with side and with shoulder, and pushed all the diseased with your horns, till so you have scattered them abroad, therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey. And I will judge between cattle and cattle, and I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. So this is the time that David is envisioning in this particular psalm. And so you say, well, but this was much later. You know, Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, you know, they're writing um, in in the exile and, and and such. And this is much later than David. But remember, David was a prophet. Uh, we're told that Acts chapter two, verses thirty to thirty-one. Um, and not only that, David also knew the prophecies of Moses because Moses prophesied things like the cutting off of the priestly line. He prophesied the exile and the scattering of Israel among the nations. And that's in places like Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 to 31, Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 32. So in other words, these things were prophesied long, long ago that they were going to take place before Israel ever ever even entered into the land, before David ever even sat on a on a throne over um, Israel in, in any capacity. So David also not only that, but he also knew in his own lifetime that Israel was not at peace. They were not dwelling in the land safely. They were not dwelling in the land unitedly. Think about um, sort of the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, the tribe of, of Judah and the tribe of, of Benjamin. Think about the uprisings of Absalom and and, and such that, that sought to um, depose David from the throne. So David knew an Israel that was not at the not at peace, not in the totality of the land that was promised, and he also knew these prophecies of Moses that they're, they're going to end up being scattered from off of it, and, and these things were going to be ended. David also received the covenant that promised Israel would dwell safely in their land, Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse number 10. So David is looking far forward, far beyond his own experience, far forward beyond the exile that's going to happen after David's time, the splitting of the kingdom that's going to happen after David's time. And David knows that there's going to come a time when all the tribes of Israel will be gathered and they will will dwell in the land. As, As God said, he's going to plant them in that land where they're going to dwell forevermore. And they're going to dwell in unitedness. And so that's what David is looking forward to in this psalm. And so this psalm brings out two particulars in regard to that gathering and restoration. One particular is in relation to the people of Israel. And the other is in relation to Israel, the land, as it was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when it comes to the people, the tribes... Are going to sit together unitedly, and that's from Hermon to Zion. So again, that covers the totality of the land of Israel. Throughout all of Israel's land, the tribes are going to, to possess their inheritance, and they're going to do so in peace and in safety and without strife and conflict between the tribes. The anointing of the priest, so, so he said it's going to be like that, so the anointing of the priest was an action that consecrated him to God. So this speaks of how that the whole nation will be holy to the Lord. And this was prophesied in places like Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. And we see later prophecies like in, in Zechariah um, where he prophesied this as well. The whole nation will be consecrated. Not, not just a line of priests, but the whole nation will be, will be holy unto the Lord. And the land itself will be restored and refreshed. And we get that imagery from Hermon to Zion again um, entirely. So that all Israel shall be saved. Now, the Messianic hope of this psalm is seen through the restoration of Zion and the blessings that come from it. So, especially when you think about the, the way that this psalm is constructed. And again, you have this descent motif and you have something of a mirroring that takes place of what happened earlier in the Psalms of Ascent. Well, here you have another, another mirroring, mirroring, boy, that's a tough word to say, mirroring effect. Hermon is the tallest mountain, but Zion is prophesied to become the highest mountain in the restoration. And we saw that in Psalm 48 and verse number two. What that means is 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 not that not that zion is going to be built up so that it has a higher elevation but zion is going to be exalted because the king will dwell there because when he comes to zion it will be the highest mountain of the earth meaning that it is the throne and the seat from which King Jesus is going to rule, not just over Israel, but over all the nations of this earth from sea to sea. The king's dwelling in Zion, his installation there, as Psalm 2 prophesies, is why that the blessings will flow from Zion, and not just blessings of um, abundance of of the fields and, and trees, but abundance uh, or or the blessing of salvation which is the implication of eternal life everlasting life that is given um, to those who believe when they inherit his kingdom all right so let's go to application i stuck with one main application here so Understanding Psalm 133 helps us understand that not everything in the Bible is a command to obey or an action to perform, and this is this is something that I think that that we I don't know if it's human nature um, I don't know if it's conditioning but we we sort of want we want the Bible to tell us what to do and, and the Bible certainly does that. You know, we, we or we think I have this problem, and so I want to come to the Bible to find solution for this problem, or you know what I should do in light in light of this. And we've got a passage like this. There's not a command in it. No one is told to do anything in Psalm 133. So this this Psalm is a is a statement of truth, of what God has covenanted to do for the nation of Israel whom he has chosen. Now, we know from other passages that the blessings flow out from Zion and they flow out from and through Israel to all the nations of the earth in in that time, in the Messiah's kingdom. Well, we also know that Psalm 133 is a part of Scripture, meaning that it's needful, it's useful, and it's equipping. Now, does it tell us um, what to do tomorrow? No, it doesn't give us that that sort of, of command or that sort of application, but it actually does help us as we live our lives and as we think about the future. Because remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are to seek first his kingdom and righteousness. And again, it does tell us what God has promised to do, what he is going to do. It shows us where our hope is to be found, how that as Christian people, believers in Jesus Christ, we are a future-oriented people. We know that our lives are not all about what we can get and do and have and become in the present life, but also more importantly about that life that is to come.